people who have a healthy drive to excel strive to do their very best, but if they fall short, they don't feel shame. They, they step back, they see how they could have done it differently, they try harder next time, practice, whatever it might be, and they get up and keep going. Um, so again, keep that love and commitment to quality, but let go of the false notion that everything can or should be perfect. Because sometimes if you're working with a team, for example, you could be slowing the whole team down by making sure every you know I is dotted and T is crossed in things that aren't really important. I founded the BeWell Collective, a not-for-profit organization that aims to bring nutritional education and mental health support to the fashion and creative industries. I believe the topics we discuss throughout our series are relevant to whatever industry that you work in or any issues that you might be facing. Because as a collective, together, we are stronger. Have you over the last year felt like a fraud in your job or in any form of your life? Because in today's episode, I am going to be covering imposter syndrome. And it's a buzzword that I have heard continuously over the past year, with so many people feeling so worried and anxious and doubting their own abilities and feeling like a fraud. A Google search yields more than 5 million responses. Imposter syndrome has been said to be linked to people such as Sheryl Sandberg, who is the COO of Facebook, and even the First Lady, Michelle Obama. But what I feel seems to be less explored is why does imposter syndrome exist in the first place? And what does our role and our surroundings in our everyday environment and workplace have to play in this? Is it that we need to change our thought processes and reevaluate how we are thinking about ourselves as individuals? Maybe. But how much is our external environment and society influencing us? Imposter syndrome is associated with impaired job performance, decreased satisfaction at work and burnout. But is there any positives to have an imposter syndrome? And does imposter syndrome really exist? To help me explore this further, I speak to Dr. Valerie Young. Valerie is an international known expert on imposter syndrome and she is an award-winning author on the book, The Secret Thoughts of Successful Women, why capable people suffer from imposter syndrome and how to thrive in spite of it. Valerie, thank you so much for coming on to Live Well Be Well today. How are you, firstly? I'm, I'm great. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm thrilled to have you on. I just mentioned to you before, actually, I am so excited to record this podcast with you. And I know so many of my listeners are going to be ecstatic this is coming out because this seems to be a topic of conversation regarding imposter syndrome that has become a bit of a, I want to say a bit of a buzzword. I never really knew about it until the last year or so. And now everybody is talking about it. Oh, it's definitely the, the hot topic, which is amazing when you think that it's been, the, 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 the phrase has been around, the term has been around since 1978. Yes. Yeah, so could you please like tell my list of maybe if people don't know what it is, could you maybe define what imposter syndrome is? Because you said it's been around for quite a while by the sounds of it. Yeah. I mean, I first heard about it in 1980. Uh, there was a paper that came out called The Imposter Phenomenon Amongst High Achieving Women with Dr. Pauline Clance and Dr. Suzanne Imes. Those are the two psychologists who first coined the term the imposter phenomenon. So it's not really a 
psychiatrically diagnosable syndrome, but somewhere along the line that name got attached to it. Um, And basically what they found in in their research, they were looking at women at the time. And what they found is this kind of pervasive belief that deep down, you know, that we're really not as intelligent, capable, competent, qualified, talented as other people seem to think that we are. And that, you know, we basically externalize our successes. You know, we explain them away. We chalk them up to things like luck, timing, computer error, you know, oh, they just like me. Uh, if I can do it, anyone can. I had connections, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, as a result, of course, there's this fear that eventually we're going to be found out. And so that's what it is. It's a feeling of feeling like a fraud. Absolutely, that, that we're fooling people and that it's just a matter of time before they will figure out that we really don't know as much or we're not as talented or qualified as they think we are. And before we kind of get into why we're, we're that way, you actually had your own experience of imposter syndrome. Would you be happy to share part oh, of your story about this? Absolutely. I mean, there I was, uh, 1980, sitting in a, a, a classroom. I was a graduate student and getting a doctorate. And somebody brought in a paper by, you know, Pauline Clance and Suzanne Imes and started describing how all these bright, capable, competent people felt like they were fooling folks. And I just instantly identified. And I started nodding my head like a bobblehead doll, looked around the room, all the other graduate students were nodding their head. So we decided to start a little imposter support group. And we started meeting after class and talking about our intellectual fraudulence, how we're fooling all of our professors. And everything went great for the first few weeks. And then I started to have this nagging sense, Sarah, that even though everyone else was saying they were an imposter, I knew I was the only real imposter. <laughs> so uh, I actually decided to change the topic of my research. And because of that, I was so you know fascinated by how, how could this be? Right? I didn't exactly study imposter syndrome. More broadly, I looked at internal barriers to women's uh, occupational achievement. So in other words, all the reasons that might lead us to feel like imposters, fakes, or frauds. Oh, wow. So how did you, how did you overcome that? So when you changed your direction of research was when you were understanding more about it and you were looking more into this, did it make you feel more settled within yourself or did it kind of explode those feelings? Because sometimes when you can read into something a bit more, you can actually think about it a lot more. Yeah. You know, don't know that it contributed to them. Um, I think it gave me a broader understanding, mm. which allowed me, because my background is education, adult education. So then I, I decided to take what I was finding and I turned it into an interactive workshop to kind of share that with other people. So I think the more I learned about it, the, the more, um, and I think that's key, right? The more we understand something, the more we have information and insight into what's happening when we're talking about unconscious pattern, the more beneficial it is of course there's also sometimes when people can read into something as well and then it can manifest and they can start to really believe that actually they are a fraud so it's it's really interesting how this could work in the sense that if you are reading into it will that actually stop you from achieving it because you do feel that you're up against these barriers or not what's your thoughts on that yeah and that can happen to people i remember years ago i got an email from a young man who said he feels like an imposter and I basically said, well, of course you do, because I, I remember he was he was a scientist. He was the first uh, person in his family to go to university. There was just like all these reasons why it made sense that he would feel like an imposter. So I spelled those out and he's like, oh, my God, then it's hopeless for me. And I'm like, no, no, this is good because <laughs> because you're understanding that it's not all about you. Right. And so you can do less personalizing, less psychologizing and more you know, contextualizing. 
so you've also defined that we can all experience imposter syndrome differently to one another but it also depends on how we define competence can you explain what this means to my listeners Sure, absolutely. You know, I think, I mean, there's many reasons why people feel like imposters, and we could talk about those, Sarah, but the the core reason that is common to everyone with imposter feelings is we have unrealistic, unsustainable expectations for ourselves uh, about what it means to be competent, how we measure and evaluate our own competence. Very often when you read about imposter syndrome, the, the focus is on perfectionists, and that's one you know, competence type, if you will. Uh, For decades, I would put people in two groups and I would have them come up with the imposter competence rule book, right? These unhealthy rules. In other words, if I was really intelligent, capable, competent, I should, or I'd never, or I'd always. Like the young man at Stanford University who said, I feel like I should already know what I came here to learn. Or, you know, uh, if I was really competent, I I shouldn't need any help. Or I'd always know the answer, those kinds of things. So I started collecting the flip charts. They would write it down on these big pads and I would collect them. And I noticed these patterns. And the pattern was, even though, again, we all skew what it means to be competent, we all hold ourselves to these very high standards, we don't do it the same way. So the perfectionist is one. So for that person, uh, and they're all kind of grounded in shame, right? Of falling short of those standards. So for the perfectionist, Getting a 99 out of 100 on an exam would feel like failure and evoke shame. For the perfectionist, making a presentation or doing a podcast, right, and stumbling over their words, making a minor mistake, forgetting to say something, and they will beat themselves up endlessly because they expect a flawless performance 100% of the time. But there's more going on, right? There's also the expert, which is, uh, think of it as the... um, the knowledge version of the perfectionist. So for that person, it's not so much about the quality of their work, that's still important, but for them, the what is paramount is the quantity of knowledge and information that they know. And in their mind, they can never know enough. So it's always one more book to t- read, one more course to take, one more designation or degree to get, this kind of endless pursuit of the end of knowledge. And so for them, uh, somebody asking them a question and they don't know the answer, right? That would evoke shame. That would feel like failure. Then there's five of them. So the third one is the natural genius. Somehow this person got into his or her head, if I was really intelligent, capable, competent, this wouldn't be this hard. So it's not that they think they're a genius or, or they are a genius. It's that they, they have this expectation that competence should be all about ease and speed. Like competent people don't have to really work at it. It's just effortless and innate, right? They expect to come out of the womb knowing how to do advanced calculus or how to write a dissertation or do all, you know, make an incredible presentation, not realizing that it's always going to take effort and work and that kind of thing, practice. Um, the, The fourth one is the soloist, as it sounds. They expect to perform flawlessly by themselves. And the fact that they might need help mentoring, tutoring, in their mind, proves they must be an imposter. Uh, and the, the last one is the, the superwoman, superman, super student, super person who feels like they have to excel not just in their career or their academic life, but also in all the other roles as a parent, as a partner, as a member of their larger extended family, uh, the community, volunteer, and look good all at the same time. So they're expecting it, that excellence across the board. And is it true that imposter syndrome will manifest differently in different people? Because you've just mentioned about the different areas and how you can manifest. But would each of those individual groups have different symptoms of imposter syndrome? Would you be able to run me through them? 
Well, it certainly could be. You know, I mean, it just it, it gives them a different reason, perhaps, to to judge themselves or to not try things. So, for example, if you identify with a natural genius who thinks you should pick things up and just you know start a new job and hit the ground running and pick it up immediately. Um, you might shy away from opportunities that involve, you know, a stretch for you, or that does take time and effort. You know, know, when I was young, my uncle, Buddy, he played the guitar, the violin, the mandolin, and I wanted him to teach me. I was probably 10 years old. And, and, And that lesson lasted about five minutes, because I realized now I didn't want to learn how to play the guitar. I wanted to play the guitar, right? But I didn't have, you know, the, the patience to, yeah, I must not be a natural guitar player if I couldn't just sit down, just boom, you know, <laughs> bang it out like Santana. Um, so I think you're right. I think depending on what it is, if, if you're the expert, right, you're going to be continually, like you won't start your business, right, or grow your business because you're constantly doing more and more research. Or if you're the perfectionist, you're never going to launch your website because you're going to be tinkering with it all the time until it's absolutely perfect, which it will never be. So you just mentioned some of the disadvantages there of having imposter syndrome. Would you be able to actually explain what are the disadvantages if you are suffering with this, if you are maybe the perfectionist or you are the superwoman of the mum trying to do everything and keep everything, the household together? What are the disadvantages that come with having this syndrome? You know, but there's good news and bad news. So I always tell Mm. people for the perfectionist, I mean, obviously we do these things because we're trying the best we can. Yeah. Right. So the good news about the perfectionist is you care deeply about the quality of your work. But I want them to recognize that there's a difference between perfectionism and a healthy drive to excel. People who have a healthy drive to excel strive to do their very best, but if they fall short, they don't feel shame. They, they step back, they see how they could have done it differently. They try harder next time, practice, whatever it might be, and they get up and keep going. Um, so again, keep that love and commitment to quality, but let go of the false notion that everything can or should be perfect. Because sometimes if you're working with a team, for example, you could be slowing the whole team down by making sure every, you know, I is dotted and T is crossed in things that aren't really important, you know, so not, don't obsess over routine kinds of things. Sometimes things are good enough. As my entrepreneur friends would say, half ass is better than no ass. You know, in other words, sometimes you have to get version one out the door mm-hmm. and you can course correct as you go along. You know, the, the, the second time you put on a conference is going to be better than the first. The third time is going to be better than the second. And is there different, I mean, going along with that, that there's obviously these five groups, they're different types of imposter syndromes. Is there also certain subgroups in these people so as you mentioned you mentioned a lot about women but not as much about men are women more at risk of the imposter syndrome than men well the research does show that women as a group were obviously genderalizing you can't say all women do this or all men do that um, but as a group women tend to be more uh perfectionist but there are many men you know, this is one of the very few psychological phenomena sarah where researchers thought it first affected primarily women quickly determine there are a lot of men who also have these um, feelings. So, you know, I, I can't say I've noticed a, a well, yes, I would say I've noticed a, there is a difference, you know, because I do polls when I, I do webinars for major corporations all the time and I do polls. And if it's a primarily female audience, they're more likely to pick the perfectionist and, and the superwoman. You see a lot less of the superman, right? I mean, men are not as concerned about how the house looks. 
I had an electrician over my house recently and I said, John, when you go to a man's house, does he ever apologize when the house is a mess? And he said, never. Right. So I think for women, there are more of like those external expectations around perfectionism that we do absorb. Uh, but certainly there are many, many, many men feel like imposters. And it's a question that has come to my mind because I recorded a podcast recently um, with Farah Storr and she's the British editor of UKL magazine. And she'd written a book about actually fear and excitement can be linked quite similarly together and it's how we react to that. And I can imagine this is the same with the fear and the worry that you have with imposter syndrome as well as excitement that you can have around certain events as well. And it's how you actually react to that. And one of the things that I thought is, are we also affected not just by how we're feeling physically, but are we also affected by our environment and the culture that we're in that's making us feel like this? So is it that we shouldn't be so much focusing on ourselves and things that we need to change and focus on, but is it maybe cultural issues or biases within society that we need to fix? So if you're looking at things like systemic racism, I don't know if there's any links with people who are of multiple heritage or if you're black that you might suffer more with this than a Caucasian white person or look at the gender pay gap. And maybe that's why women have always felt quite inferior to men in the workplace. Like what's your view on, on that as a whole? Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, one of the, I, I basically promote three tools. And the first one is to normalize imposter syndrome. Partly we do that by talking about it like we're doing right now, right? Talking about it in a podcast, talking about it within a corporation or a university. Um, but also is to understand that there are these perfectly good reasons why someone might feel like a fraud. And there is a strong intersection between imposter syndrome and diversity and inclusion. In other words, a sense of belonging fosters confidence. Mm-hmm. So when you walk into a classroom or a meeting or a workplace or the executive level in an organization, the more people who look like you, the more confident you feel. It's just common sense. There may be more people who sound like you. Maybe the, the language being spoken there is not your first language. Or maybe you have a strong regional accent or kind of working class accent, right? So the more people who look or sound like you, the more confident you feel. And the reverse is true. I've spoken to over 100 universities around the world. And I can tell you the biggest group to show up, I'm usually talking to PhD and master's students, are the international students, which makes sense, right? Because you've got the same pressures everyone else has, but you're doing it in another culture and often in another language. If, if you're one of the few people who look like you or uh, the only one or the first, because there's that kind of pressure to represent. Now you're not just a person who uh, has a sight impairment or is blind or in a wheelchair. Now you have to be kind of super disabled woman. So I'm sure Michelle Obama felt tremendous pressure as the first African-American, as of course her husband did, but she's talked about having imposter syndrome, but that pressure now to represent, you know, all all black people. And by the way, this is true for any group for whom there are stereotypes Mm. about, um, about knowledge or competence. So if you're the youngest person in a work environment, you might feel underestimated because of stereotypes. Or if you're the oldest person, you might feel that way. I, I asked that question to Facebook employees when I spoke there. How many of you have been the young oldest person and felt like you were being underestimated? The 30 year olds raised their hand, right? So it's all kind of relative. But so that's a piece of it, right? The, the social factors. And so I think we need to do less 
personalizing, less psychologizing, and more contextualizing, but there's situational factors. Just being a student at a university, period, all by itself makes you more likely to feel like an imposter. It makes sense. You're being, your knowledge and intellect is literally being tested day in and day out. People who work alone, you know, historically that meant you know, solo practitioners, self-employed people, but now with uh, people, you know, with COVID and people working virtually, I think that's one reason you started out saying, you know, you're seeing imposter everywhere. I mm-hmm. think that's part of the reason because uh, mm-hmm. so many people are now working from home and getting in their head a lot more. People in certain fields are more likely, people in creative fields, acting, writing, art, as well as people in science, technology, medicine, and very information-dense, rapidly changing fields. And there are some organizational cultures that by their nature fuel self-doubt, uh, university system being being chief among them. Universities, imposter is rampant at universities, not just among students, but also faculty um, and staff. So I, I say this because I think when you have a normal imposter moment, what I want your, your listeners to do is to kind of zoom out and get the view from 20,000 feet and go, well, of course I feel this way. I'm the first generation of my family to go to university or I'm in, a, I'm in science, or you know, I'm working alone, or whatever the reason might be, but, but to have that larger context. That's really interesting. So what would be your strategies for anybody who's listening at the moment, just thinking, I because I've had a lot of messages on Instagram when I put this out, and I mentioned this to you earlier, actually, and it was it's lovely to be able to relay these messages straight to you, because a lot of people are saying, I'm feeling really overwhelmed at the moment, yeah. You know, I constantly can't get this out of my head. I do think the pandemic has definitely affected many definitely. people working from home. You know, what advice would you give to those people who are listening, who are really suffering with everything that you've just explained of feeling like an imposter? Well, I think, you know, to normalize it and to go, well, I mean, especially with the working virtually, this will pass. This is contextual. You know, there's a reason and I'm not the only one who feels this way. Um, you know, because when you're working alone, if you're used to work in an organization, we all know that there was the meeting after the meeting, right? There was the meeting to, to process the meeting. And we don't often have those now. So even if, you know, every so often, once a week, a couple times a week, you can get on the phone, forget the Zoom and all that, but get on the phone and chat with a colleague and, you know, get some perspective on things because it is much easier to get get in our head and to work a lot longer when we're working virtually as well. So set some boundaries around, you know, around your, your work life. Uh, but honestly, I think in addition to normalizing, the, the biggest thing people can do is, is what I call reframing. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, to become consciously aware, what is the conversation going on in your head when you're having a normal imposter moment? And then stepping back to reframe it the way somebody who is humble, but has never had imposter feelings, that kind of 30% of people who've never had these feelings because they're no more intelligent, capable, competent than the rest of us. It's just in the exact same situation where, you know, I might feel like an imposter, they're thinking different thoughts. So it's about learning to reframe competence and what that means to reframe failure, mistakes, and criticism and have a different response. And to your point about fear is to have a different response to, to fear as well. And if we can master that, it will take care of a lot of our imposter feelings. And you mentioned a really great statistic that 30% of people never feel imposter syndrome. Is there a reason why there's a certain percentage of people that is quite a smaller percentage why they don't? 
Yeah, that's funny because that's the number that's been used for decades. It came from mm. Gail Matthews many years ago. Uh, that said, there's research out now saying 82% of people have had these feelings. I know amongst UK executives, it was like 80%. Um, so, you know, it's quite high. This is, this is why I have to break it to people that you're not special. <laughs> like we, we, many of us feel this way. It's a very, very normal, but not healthy necessarily um, feeling. So I think some people in that, whether it's 30 or 20% have a different issue. They're narcissistic. They have irrational self-confidence syndrome, right? Their, their belief in their knowledge and intellect far exceeds their actual knowledge, intellect, talent, and so on. And you sometimes see them on uh, like in the U.S., American Idol, right? Shows where people try out for talent contests. And they're horrible, but they think they have incredible voices, right? They have no perspective. So let's forget them. But there are people who I think got some very good, healthy messages growing up about competence, about failure, mistakes, and they developed a certain kind of resilience. So they're able to better respond when they do fall short. And do you think resilience plays a really large part in imposter syndrome? Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I always tell people, you can be crushingly disappointed if you don't get the, you know, you blow the big presentation or you don't get the job or the promotion, but not ashamed. You know, people who are resilient, you know, they're disappointed, but they say, okay, you know, I'll try next time or I'll learn from the mistake. Or in fact, there's a guy in my community who, he was a, um, for 12 years, he was on the town council, little local, you know, government body. He didn't get reelected. So the next thing he did, the very next day, he went and took out papers to run for state office, the next level up. He said it was the next natural step. And I'm thinking that would not be intuitive to me, that following a setback to shoot higher. But but why not? Yeah, it's making that next step and it's, it's building resilience. So how can you build resilience, Valerie? How can anyone listening to this build resilience, especially against if they are suffering with imposter syndrome? Yeah, great question. And I would literally, if you're not consciously aware of what the conversation you are having in your head, it's harder. So if you can step back and kind of hit the pause button and then imagine calling in the script writers to play the part of you in that scenario, right? And call in the script writers uh, to rewrite the scene as somebody who does not feel like an imposter, who's humble, but has not had these feelings. Uh, and what, how might they look at it completely differently? So, for example, um, stepping into a new job, a new promotion is overwhelming. And we think it's us, but you're learning new systems, names, acronyms, history, inside jokes that you know, people are coming up with at meetings on top of learning your job. So it's completely overwhelming. So instead of thinking, oh, there's something wrong with me, I'm not qualified, I can't do this, to think, hey, I'm going to have a learning curve for the first three or six months, I am going to be off base for three to six months and to say that's perfectly normal and to give yourself a huge break. Or, you know, students walk into a university and they go, oh my God, everyone here is brilliant. I would rather they say, wow, everyone here is brilliant. I'm going to learn so much. Or I've never done this project before, uh, but I can figure it out. Or Sarah has, I'll call Sarah and ask her or get some podcast tips from her. So it's a different way of looking at it. And you, you're not going to believe the new thoughts at first. But see, what everybody wants is to stop feeling like an imposter. And feelings are the last to change. The only way to stop feeling like an imposter is to stop thinking like an imposter. You don't believe the new thoughts yet, but change your thoughts, then change your behavior. Do the thing that's scary. Do the stretch. And, and over time, 
you will feel more confident. Because to me, the goal is not to never feel like an imposter. If that happens, that's great. To me, the goal is to have the insight, the, the uh, information, the tools. So when you have that normal imposter moment, you can talk yourself down faster. And I think that's really important, actually, because when you do do that and you do put yourself in a in a unsafe space, I would say, one that's not your safe space, yep. that is where growth happens. And so it's about looking at if you are suffering from imposter syndrome, are you allowing growth to happen? Because the fear of failure can feel so overbearing and overwhelming that it can stop us. Is that something that you see a lot with people that you work with? Oh, definitely. I mean, one coping mechanism, and there's a number of them, but one of the coping mechanisms is to, I, I call it flying under the radar, kind of holding back. So you don't go for more challenging opportunities or promotions. You stay in a job that's very safe and comfortable. You don't grow your business. Um, you know, you don't take the uh, uh, transfer to move to another part of the world or another part of the country. Uh, and so it's safer there because they won't find you out. So for, for all the coping mechanisms, they work. The good news is it protects you from being found out, but always at a cost. We pay a price for that protection. For someone else, they might go to the other end of that um, continuum. Instead of holding back, they overwork, overprepare for everything. And so things that don't even need you know, that kind of effort, they will put in hours on something. And then they have this sense that the only reason they're successful is that they have to work harder than other people to cover up for their supposed ineptness. And it works, right? If, you, if you're a workaholic, you're probably going to be successful, but you also pay a high cost for that as well. How would you cope when you are at these extreme ends of maybe being at burnout or you are putting things off because you're so afraid of failure? You mentioned about coping mechanisms and there's many what are these gift mechanisms? Well, there, there's the holding back, flying under the radar, procrastination. And I mean, I mean, we all procrastinate, let's face it, right? We're hardwired to avoid things that are difficult, challenging, you know, un distasteful. Uh, but how procrastination protects us is if you, uh, example, there was a woman who wanted this very competitive uh, internship, university internship. To get it, she had to write this big essay, uh, big application process. She had six months to do it. She did it the day before it was due. She got it in on time, but she doesn't get the internship. How procrastination protects her, she can say to herself, well, I'm disappointed, but I'm hardly surprised. She knows it didn't represent her best effort. But the rub is that when she got there, she was not going to feel deserving. She was going to feel like she fooled them again. And sadly, another one is never starting or finishing the degree, the book, the painting, because if something's always in process or you don't finish it, no one can judge you. So that protects you. Or it could be self-sabotage, people who job hop, uh, alcohol or substance abuse. So for, for all of these, I always point out that the good news is that, that they work. They protect us. They help us avoid humiliation, disappointment, uh, embarrassment. They help us get something. You procrastinate, you get time to do stuff you'd rather do you work crazy hard, you over-prepare, you're probably going to be successful, which makes it a hard pattern to break. But you have to flip it over and, and ask, you know, at what cost, right? What is the price I pay for that protection? And the cost is to ask yourself, what will happen if I never change this pattern? What price will I pay? What opportunities and experiences will I be missing out on? Then you can make a conscious decision. Like once you know I, I'm getting this, it's costing me that, you can say, well, I'm going to keep my lousy pattern. 
So, so what? I'm getting a bleeding ulcer, and I, you know, I never see my family because I'm working all the time. Or you decide that the price is too high. It only, you know, you as an individual can make that decision. I think there's a lot of business leaders, um, which I think is quite apparent with the poster syndrome, and that can obviously be the other end with the burnout what you were talking about and and the overworking you know how important is it for business leaders to to listen to understanding what imposter syndrome is to help them actually become maybe more efficient with their time but not getting to the sense of burnout so they are right. they are actually being efficient they're more efficient because they're not exhausted yeah i think it's hugely important i think it's important for uh, people in organizations to understand that they don't actually have to feel like an imposter themselves, but if they manage, mentor, lead, train, or parent other people, they need to understand it. Because those behaviors I mentioned, the holding back, flying under the radar, procrastination, uh, you know, self-sabotage, over-preparing, overworking, there's cost to the organization as well. So they need mm-hmm. to understand it uh, from that perspective. And I mean, burnout is costly in organizations. It's costly to... Um, the, the business. If, if people are, you know, completely burning out, they're, they're not being innovative. They, they can't bring their best self um, to the job. And, you know, literally people have physiological responses, obviously, to burnout, which can mm-hmm. be problematic as well. Yeah. Burnout, I think it's one of the, I mean, stress, stress-related illnesses, and it, it causes yeah. inflammation and it causes you so many problems, not just yeah. mental health, but physical health as well. And I think that's an underlining thing that many of us are starting to see maybe in the last year that we're now seeing physical symptoms from burnout and feeling stressed. Yes. So, may, so maybe it would be fantastic for my listeners to hear that while they're at home and they maybe feel that they're overworking, they might not be a business leader, but they might feel that they're not really taking responsibility or boundaries for their own health, um, physically and mentally, because they just don't feel like they have enough time to. I think that's one thing you're talking about this, but it's kind of thinking, gosh, that takes more time to think about this. So what would be your your go-to tips for somebody sitting at home now who feels quite paralyzed by imposter syndrome and is on that extreme end of workout, how they can in their environment, which we are in today of lockdown in the UK, um, take steps to help improving themselves um, and and, and feeling settled with with how they're feeling? Well, you might want to make a list of what are the aspects of my job where it needs to be pretty darn perfect, right? Where I really do need to put my time and energy. And what are the things that I do, you know, day in and day out that good enough is good enough? Uh, You might want to take to keep a time log, to see where are you spending your, you know, your, your time and energy, for example, if you are a perfectionist. Um, and is the other consequences to other people? You know, a lot of people say, I work best under pressure, right? The, the procrastinators, which may be true, I get that, but it's very hard on the central nervous system because it's always in the back of your mind, the thing you have to do. Um, and also problematic if you work with other people because everybody has a job that depends on someone else doing their job. And if you're a chronic procrastinator and suddenly something comes up and you can't, you had that left this little window and now that window is gone, it's going to affect, you know, other people. So sometimes becoming consciously aware of the impact on other people, not just us, can be a motivator to, to shift our behavior as well. 
And where would you say people could find kind of more information about imposter syndrome? Where could people read up about it more and educate themselves after this podcast if they really want to know more about it? Is there somewhere they can source help? Is it the kind of thing where you might go and see a therapist about to talk further further into? Um, certainly people do go to therapy. I, mean, I personally would never see a therapist who hadn't themselves experienced imposter syndrome. Um, I worry a little bit about the therapy approach only because um, some people get stuck there. Mm. And they literally spend years, you know, talking about if it's not one thing, it's your mother, you know, and, 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 and there are experiences growing up that can contribute to imposter syndrome that can lead to a child, you know, thinking they have to overachieve or whatever that might be. But I do find people can get stuck endlessly talking about their imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's some research that found that adolescents who it's called co-ruminating, who dwell on negative thoughts and feelings with their friends, actually experience higher levels of depression and anxiety. Adolescent girls are more likely to co-ruminate because how women, females uh, manage stress is often by talking about it. Men compartmentalize, They're like they just say, I'm not going to think about it. Um, so I think that it's good to talk about it, but it's just a step and we can get stuck there. I always tell people, sometimes my friends and I talk about how fat we feel, but we never feel any thinner at the end of that conversation. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So, you know, maybe get together with some other people and st start having the conversation. There's certainly, you know, many books out there um, on the topic. I, I'm kind of partial, Yours to, is my, one. I'm kind of partial <laughs> to my own, to my own book. Um, I'll and, leave that know, in the show notes, obviously. Yeah. Uh, you know, but the title, I, I don't want people to be de defer, um, deterred by the title. I don't want men to be deterred. I mean, there are things obviously in there that are, you know, kind of specific and speaking to women because that's what the publisher wanted at Random House. Oh, however, I don't want women to be deterred either. I, I, I don't like the title because it's called The Secret Thoughts of Successful Women. So many people hear that and they think, oh, full professor, president of a company, you know, mm. president of a country. They don't think it means the first year student at university or the person starting their small business or the artist or, you know, somebody who's in, you know, middle management or below in an organization. Um, so that's why I don't like that, that title. That's really interesting, actually, because the lot when I started reading into imposter syndrome was get kept referencing business leaders and CEOs. And, right. but I do think when I put it out on social media, every single person from all different walks of life was suffering with this. So it is something that I think is fantastic to talk about, as you said, and normalize, but I completely agree with you to not get too bogged down into it because it can also manifest and co-ruminate, as you said, and yep. can start those beliefs. And it can be quite hard to get out of those beliefs. As you said, you want to constantly reframe, whereas if you're reading more about it, sometimes that can be harder to reframe it and, and get away from. I'd love to just kind of for you to run through lastly your top tips on managing imposter syndrome before we go so we can kind of get a nice roundup of when people leave they know that yes they can go and read up about it listen to further podcasts listen to your fantastic TED talk which I was hoping you might put in there but for anyone who hasn't seen Valerie's talk on this it's wonderful it's 12 minutes um six six minutes they oh it's gave, six minutes that's of all course. they gave me was six minutes yes <laughs> we actually had that conversation didn't we yeah i remember um six minutes um but what would be kind of your top tips on, on managing this going forward especially in the pandemic yeah i like to keep it really simple so to normalize it but by yes talking about it but understanding the the larger 
contextual reasons, do less psychologizing, less personalizing, to reframe what it means to be competent, reframe our response to failure, mistakes, and criticism, and fear, fear and excitement, very similar, fear is normal, goes with the territory. And the last one is to kind of keep going regardless of how you feel. In other words, don't wait until you feel more confident to to grow your business or decide to go get that advanced degree or go for a promotion or whatever that might be. You've got to start on the thoughts and then the behaviors and then let the feelings catch up. Um, And the last thing I'd say is when you think about it, there's a certain amount of arrogance to the imposter syndrome. Because what we're really saying is other people are so stupid they don't realize we're incompetent. <laughs> so imagine, Sarah, at the end of this, you said, oh, thank you. That was very you know, helpful. I appreciate I, you know, it. It was a good interview. And I go, oh, really, Sarah? Wow. I mean, have you done many podcasts before? Seriously, you thought that was good? I mean, how insulting and how arrogant would that sound? Right? I mean, what should, right? what, I, what, what should I say? I should say, thank you. And then zip it. Because especially women like to do true confessions. Someone compliments us and we go, oh, well, did you notice the typo on page three? Or did you notice where I lost my train of thought? Let me, let me point out to you why I don't deserve that compliment. So just say thank you and leave it at that. That's fantastic. That is so true. I hope you don't think that. I do hope you think it was a good interview. <laughs> I think it was an excellent interview. I think it was very good. I was making a point, right? No, of joking. I- of course, of course. Um, no, it was a very good point. It's really nice when you can actually see it in the narrative of how you're explaining it because then you go, well, no, that that's what I do do or, you know, I shouldn't do this. And you can kind of understand your behavior and approaches towards it, um, yeah. which helps normalize it. Well, Lastly, the last question, which I ask all my guests is, Valerie, how do you live well and be well? Ah, my dog helps me live well and be well. Uh, You know, friends, I'm part of a hike club. We go hiking every week and I get out and walk every day and just, and, and I focus a lot on gratitude and what I, all the things I have, I have in my life and the very small problems that I have relative to so many people in the world. I have to say gratitude's helped me a lot yes. in the last year in this pandemic. The one thing I have to say has really got me through it is yes. being grateful and writing down two to three things that you're grateful every day. And it can feel hard sometimes even writing a couple down um, on bad days, but it can be really beneficial. So I'm yeah. definitely I'm definitely with you on that one with the gratitude. Great. Thank you so much for coming on Live Well, Be Well. Thank you. Great job. Thank you so much for listening to Live Well, Be Well. I hope you thoroughly enjoyed that episode. And if you did, please do leave a five-star review. It means a lot to me and also helps share the episode widely to more people. Until next week, I hope you all live well and be well. Before you go, I have something new to tell you about. There's brand new bonus content waiting for you with every new guest I speak to. These are exclusively for my inner circle of Apple subscribers. To listen now, head to the Live Well, Be Well show page on Apple Podcasts, where you can activate your free trial and you can enjoy the podcast without adverts.